So the um, once Bishop of Edinburgh, now um, broadcaster and uh, writer, Richard Holloway, is in his lounge, I think, in Edinburgh. And we're just going to try and ring him. <laughs> sort of Graham Norton style. See if I'm okay. so, so. I'll be amazed if this works, I have to say. Hello, Richard. You all right? Can you hear me? I'm fine. I'm just going to try and switch you to the speakerphone, yeah? Oh, here we go. Just going to try this now, yeah? So there's 300 people in here. <laughs> can you hear me? I can hear you perfectly, yeah. Can you hear Richard? Yes, I oh, can hear you. Can you hear me? We can hear you, yeah. Is that cloudy or is that audible? Just, Are you talking to me? I'm talking to them for the moment. But <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's better. Um, how are you? I'm very well. Yep, good. So I'm ringing you a day ahead of your 85th birthday. Is no, that that's, I mean, imagine bringing that up, Sam. That's well, very unforgiving. <laughs> yeah, I was, there was a bit of a long pause there. So I, but, well, it's inescapably true, though, isn't it? It is absolutely the case. And my, my two beloved children who live in this country have just gone. They came yesterday to have a, an early birthday party with me last night, and it was lovely. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a chat. I'm going to just drop the lights, if we could, completely, um, about, I suppose, what it, you, what it feels like to be at 85, particularly given all you have written about in the last um, few years about mortality and uh -huh. our encounter with that. And also what you said to me the other day about elderly people irritating you. <laughs> yeah, there are too many of them. Uh, and uh, I, I'm not suggesting that we do a kind of um, program, a purge of them. Yeah, but I think that the thing that probably irritates me most, although I'm beginning to repent of it, is when they're very slow in the supermarket or in an airport queue. I'm still fairly fleet of foot. And I see these um, uh, sages ahead of me, and I, I wish there was a kind of a speed mobility test before people were allowed outside. But that, that's just the wicked—that's that's the wicked bit of me. The wee souls—they can't help it. And the, the interesting thing is, you have always been, and still are, a phenomenally energetic guy. Yeah, that's true. I think I've been over-endowed with energy, which, which had a downside. I tended to rush at things. I think I've gone through life too quickly as well. I mean, one of my regrets in old age is that I didn't spend more time looking out the window while I was passing through, as it were. But, but I guess that's just my nature. It kind of kept me going. But the good thing about getting old is that I'm having to slow down. Um, and I want to cherish these last few years as, as they kind of blow away in the wind. And I think I've, I've learned to do that a bit. I was a bit resentful at first that even I got old. I thought I'd be a kind of a glorious exception to the general rule of decay. I somehow persuaded myself, no, you're going to buck the trend, brother. But no. And this year, I've had one or two weeks 
incidents that have suggested to me that my clock's um, winding down as well. So I'd better come to terms with it, and and I am. Um, I'm feeling grateful for the long life I've had, and I want to use what's left to be even more grateful. And the fact that that my body is slowing down is kind of making my mind slow down as well. Um, and no drug, is, drug has previously done that. So I'm, I'm kind of kind of grateful for that as well. But um, there you go. Richard, we've been talking for the last couple of days about love. And mm-hmm. one thing that just we haven't talked about necessarily is that this really pedestrian word, but that just achieving it at any number of levels is not an easy thing, it seems to me. God, it's probably one of the most difficult things to achieve, and it's kind of, I think, more needed. I mean, a a theologian friend of mine said, you can only know what you love, um, and you can really only love what you know, and we're so busy making enemies of each other, refusing to know the other side because it... It irritates us or angers us. Um, And again, another problem with the English language, we really only have one word that does all sorts of things. I mean, in Greek, there are six, four main ones. I mean, there's the kind of love that's affection between friends. There's sexual desire. um, There's family love. I think the kind of love you're talking about, uh, the New Testament calls agape or agape. uh, And it's a kind of unconditional love of the other for the other's own good wishing the other good rather than using them or be, uh, receiving a warm response, simply willing and wanting the other to have the good life, good things to happen to them. And I, I may just be a kind of grumpy old man, but, but I kind of miss a bit of that in our culture at the moment. It seems quite a resentful, um, uncharitable culture. So I'm glad that you down there in glorious Cheltenham have been thinking about all this this week. Well, we talked about it. We're not, I don't think we're any wiser as to how to achieve it. I suppose the question might be, how does, given your um, your experience of life and I guess your uh, interests, um, things you've thought about a lot, how genuinely, how is it, how does one arrive or, or lift from a place of fury or resentment to even the possibility of love? It, it can be difficult to do from a standing start. I mean, I think to some extent we love if we have ourselves been loved. I mean, there's a wee bit in the New Testament says um, we love because we are first loved. And we, we know that in children. We know children who've been cherished and loved tend to have the kind of security that allows them to reach out to others. If you've been starved of that, or if you've been brought up in a culture um, that, uh, that rations love only to special groups, it's kind of hard to um, start practicing uh, goodwill towards all. Um, but without it, I think that, that the kind of multiplying divisions in society are going to be difficult. But another thing maybe is... I think maybe the big haters in life don't really love themselves very much either. Uh, That's why I think we should spend a bit of time examining ourselves. When I watch really um, angry people on television, I wonder, are you feeling bad, lonely, forlorn inside? Is something happening to you? Are you feeling 
isolated, bumped to one side, unappreciated. Is that where all this is coming from? Uh, I'd just love to give you a wee cuddle to see what's going on inside you. So maybe if we practice that love of the apparently unlovable, we'd probably thaw them out as well. We'd pro- I mean, I-, I spent some time in a young offenders institution a, a few weeks ago, um, and uh, th- these were wild young men who'd, been, who'd had terrible lives, deprived childhoods, and they'd, one of them had become killers, and they were, they were violent and macho, but you could see that inside they were frightened wee boys, um, and they'd never really had that kind of cherishing, unconditional love that loved them even when they felt unworthy of the love. It's a hard thing to practice, um, but it seems to me the thing you're talking about. It's, well, you talk about this in your book, amazing book, On Forgiveness, where almost it's too easy. And we started yesterday morning with Sarah Moss talking about the idea of pharmacos, where all ills are located in another person. It's, you know, and uh, it, it, she talked about prehistory and the bog people being sacrificed for that reason as a way of um, attaching blame elsewhere and therefore saving ourselves from culpability. You're almost describing then, you talk about this in Unforgiveness, the possibility that we can recognise or the, or the need, the drive to recognise shared culpability rather than locating it always elsewhere. Oh gosh, we certainly have to do that because we're, we're, we're caught up in a kind of web of being. And one of the things that makes me tender towards other people nowadays, including myself, because I've been, I've been very censorious about myself and about other people, as I've become a kind of semi-determinist. I think most of us were formed by factors, genetic, psychological, environmental, circumstantial, historical, um, that actually gave us a set of almost predetermined aptitudes and attitudes and, 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 and deficits. Um, and they kind of program us to behave almost in a particular kind of way, almost like automata, almost like machines that, that have been robotized by some um, external force. And I think that one one of the things I've been doing in, in recent books I've been writing is trying to find out who I am, who, how, wh- what in me was delivered to me and what I can recognize um, that caused that failure, that particular weakness, and somehow own it. Uh, I love the poems that treat the self as a stranger. I mean, at one I quote Derek Walcott at the end of my book, Waiting for the Last Bus, and he says, you will love the... You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you. And there is that idea in history that we run from our own deep self and we don't love it, we we can disapprove of it, and that bounces into even more compulsive disapproval of others. So I think if, if we can all discover our flawed humanity, this mad thing that's happened to us, it's whatever force it is in the universe, it's thrown us into existence. We don't know where we come from, we don't know if we're going anywhere, we bang and collide into each other, and until we learn somehow who we are, and a kind of forgiving understanding of others, that chaos continues. And I think, and I'm ranting a bit here, but I think there's something in our own digital age that is 
has sometimes been called the death of distance. In the old days, you didn't know what people thought and felt or how they lived. Now you know everything about everyone, and we're all kind of in this fury, this clawing at each other. Um, I, I want us to recover that, this self-knowledge that breeds humility and therefore understanding that others are just as lost as we are. Richard, you, we've titled this session Interruption. Why that word? I got that word from um, uh, another compulsive character, Immanuel Kant, the philosopher. I mean, he, he described forgiveness as the interruption of the consequences of our own actions. Um, and it's a theme I also find in, in another great philosopher, Anna Arendt. Arendt, like me, believed that we were largely determined by forces that were not really under our control until we understood them. And she said that... Um, Though we don't know what we're doing when we're acting, our actions are irreversible. You can't actually delete them or wind them back once we've done them and we wish to God we hadn't done them. They set forth a sequence of actions that run on into other people's lives. You can lose someone you love. You can insult someone bitterly. Um, and that's the story of history. It's the soap opera story. All these things that we did run on and they have consequences, some of them absolutely terrible that can continue for centuries. I mean, a lot of the racial resentments, the crucial resentments that communities have for each other. And she said the only remedy for these actions is forgiveness. And that was Kant's point as well. What forgiveness does is it, it says, I'm going to interrupt the consequential sequence that could lead to deep, deep tragedy. And it's very hard actually to do it unless you somehow acknowledge this sequence. And all the great wise teachers teach that same kind of thing. Unless you somehow put wedges or ledges into this flow, everything just goes downhill. Um, I think ours is a particularly unforgiving culture. Again, it's partly because we've become so clever, so digitized, that we're constantly on all the time, and all this resentment piles up. I just wish we would slow down um, and see the harm we're doing each other and not allow a political decision taken uh, hundreds of years ago. We saw a little bit of it happening um, at the end of apartheid in South Africa when, when those extraordinary men, uh, Mandela and Tutu, um, rather than have a cycle of revenge that might easily have occurred there, and it's not a perfect country, but with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, they acknowledged that these things had happened, but they then interrupted the consequences. They said, we own this, we're going now to ignore it and move into uh, the next phase of our life. I, I wish we'd done that in a number of other places in the world, but I think unless we do it in our own lives, um, that infidelity, that insult, that thing that happened last week runs on and creates tragic consequences um, throughout our lives. And it was old Kant that said, interrupt them, interrupt the consequences of your bad actions. You may have to confess them. Sometimes people forgive um, without even having to be confessed to. A generosity in them goes out towards the other. That's what I meant when I talked about interruption. Thank you, Richard. We just, because we're short of time and we've got um, a full house here, if you were to have one sentence to deliver on love to close two days, what would you say? 
You can have two sentences. If we had, if I had two sentences, I, I would. I think I would begin with the self. I would say, I would ask you, do you love yourself? Um, even though you may not admire yourself, do you actually love yourself? Have you discovered who you are, the stranger that you are? Um, and if you have discovered how to do that, can you now transmit and transfer that to the other? And it may be you have to do some um, unexpected act of, of random kindness. You may, it may even be as simple as something in the supermarket tomorrow. But start practicing subversive acts of love. And who knows how they may radiate in some great kind of pool ripple right out into your community. And if we get lots of pools like that, it might create a great river of affection. And God knows, don't we need that? I'm just going to ask the audience cumulatively to um, shout happy birthday. So are you ready for this, Richard? <laughs> More than ready. One, two, three. Happy birthday! Happy birthday tomorrow, Richard. Thank you so much. Thank you, my dear. I love you and uh, we'll be in touch. Speak soon. Bye-bye. Bye.